This week on Across the Peak, Rich and I teach you how to deal with adversity by being prepared. Welcome to the Across the Peak podcast, the show where Rich and Justin discuss preparedness, the birds and the bees, guns, history, tattoos, and well, basically all the stuff your old man should have taught you. Rich Brown's a failed 70s child actor, retired Marine Corps officer and former cop. Justin Carroll, he's a washed up former special operator, half-assed author, and adventurer at large. Learn life skills, harden the f*** up, and become a dangerous man. Get your damn boots on, gents, because we're going across the peak. Rich, what's going on, man? What is going on? The sun is shining in Tennessee. The weather is dipping down low, and I have a roaring fire going in my wood-burning stove, man, drinking a little bit of chocolate milk and talking to you. Sounds fantastic, brother. That sounds awesome. Um, I am uh, just a little bit hungover. Kai and I kind of Tied one on last night following a about a six-mile hike where we uh, changed altitude by, I don't know, several hundred feet. We, we did a pretty rough uh, hike yesterday, and uh, I'm, I'm feeling it today, brother. Yeah, I figured you were burning it down last night. I sent you a text or two, and normally you're pretty good about getting back, and when you didn't respond, I'm like, oh, okay, I think I know what's going on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, uh, we had a special occasion yesterday, and... I, I am I am regretting some of my decisions today. Oh, that's nothing new for you, is it now? <laughs> <laughs> well, I would have been fine if I would have drank a little bit of water, man, but you know how it is. You get going. We we had dinner with uh, a couple of friends at their house, and, uh, you know, one thing led to another. Next thing you know, it's 1130, and, yeah, it's just a rough day. Yeah, and, and for the casual listener— uh, Water to booze ratio of one to one is probably sound advice. You know, we we do try to stick to that, and so we don't uh, we we try not to drink at all through the week. And sometimes that works out, and sometimes it doesn't. But that's our goal: is to not drink at all during the week, outside of maybe uh, some sort of social occasion. If we you know if we meet friends for dinner or something, we'll have a couple drinks. But uh, last night we made an exception to the rule, and because we don't drink through the week, we typically drink quite a bit on the weekend. And what we'll do is we have a rule: every three beers we drink a pint of water. And let me tell you, man, I it's been a long, long time since I've had a hangover just by following that simple rule. And that kind of limits the amount of alcohol you intake because you're filling your stomach with water every hour or so. Yeah, yeah, that's that's not bad. Three, th- three to one ratio. That's a little. Well, I, I mean, a, a pint glass is what sixteen ounces. I don't know. It 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 uh, it, it works out, man. I I think a one to one is a lot. Yeah, everybody's got to know their own body, and again, it depends on what you're drinking and a whole host of variables. Have you eaten today? But I mean, as long as you got a plan, it's better than just you know. Uh, so, what are you drinking right now, man? Man, right now I am having a. Uh, I'm having a little hair of the dog. I'm having a beer that I brought back from Tennessee. I'm having a Yeehaw Dunkel, man. Oh, I love those. Uh, you know, I do too. And uh, back when Kai was on the podcast on episode 12, she was drinking a Warsteiner Dunkel, and that kind of got me into Dunkels. I, I'd never been into them, man. I'd never really tried one. Sorry about that. My phone's going off. Uh, she turned me on to Dunkels, and when I was down in Tennessee with you, my friend... I saw that Yeehaw had a Dunkel on tap there at the uh, at the hotel bar, so I ordered one up and really loved it. Ended up buying some and bringing it back. Yeah, and I don't, 
You're right. I mean, that, Dunkels are great, but maybe an underappreciated uh, type of beer. I don't know, but I, I really like them. Yeah, it's a really rich, malty, caramelly, uh, round-bodied beer, man. I, I really like a Dunkel. And as a matter of fact, we got one brewing right now, too. We probably have a couple more weeks before that's ready to bottle. Yeah, and I'm drinking uh, chocolate milk. Uh, I had two really rough nights of uh, jujitsu this week, man, and really amped it up with my rolls. And um, anyway, dude, pretty pretty sore here. And um, I've read somewhere that chocolate milk is supposed to be a pretty damn good muscle recovery drink. Have you seen any of that? That is what they say, man, yeah. Yeah, so I didn't have a protein shake handy, and I'm like, well, you know what? I'll, I'll have a glass of chocolate milk, see if that puts me right. But anyway... What are we talking about today, man? What's on? What's the show topic? Well, today we are going to talk about all hazards preparedness, which is basically prepping 101 for people that, that aren't into prepping. And I'll, I'll be the first to admit, I am not a prepper. Uh, I might be what some people consider a prepper because I have, you know, an EDC bag that, with, you know, enough. I could probably live for a day or two out of it. But um, most preppers would probably giggle at me and be like, dude, you're not ready for shit. Just want to caveat that right out of the gate. We're, we're not turning this podcast into a preparedness podcast, but we are not also not going to shy away from those, uh, those very important topics. Yeah, and, and uh, I mean no disrespect to preppers. I, I respect the hell out of them. I am certainly not one, although the casual listener, if they came up here to the farm and looked at my truck and the way I've got some things set up here at the house, I might be, oh, well, yeah, yeah, you're a prepper. But I don't certainly don't think of myself as one. There's some negative connotations to that, that community that God love them. Um, I think there's some things they could probably do better, but uh, that's for another show perhaps. Well, I, you know, back to episode one of this podcast, uh, the problem with experts and enthusiasts and specialists is I, I feel like some people get so into prepping that they don't live the life that they have right now because they're preparing for some future post-apocalyptic life. And, you know, same thing with, uh, I see this with people who are really, really high on that privacy spectrum. They're so private and that's, that's all they worry about to the point that they hardly leave their house. They don't, you know, they don't go out, they don't interact with other people. Um, you know, any of these fields, but preparedness, yeah, you're right. It does get a bad reputation, um, and, and I'm not denigrating. I caveat that I'm not a prepper because I don't want a prepper to hear this and be like, dude, you guys are not like not even half of the don't even have half of the preparedness that we have. Uh, I, so that's why I put that out just to say that I am not probably as far along in this as I'd like to be. Um, but what we're going to talk about today is kind of a good balance. Yeah, here, here. And that's <clears throat> this is um the model that we're going to talk about for preparedness today is basically just like this podcast is this is generalist prepa- uh, prepping if you want to call it that and and really all hazards preparedness um and you know what's weird about this show and I'll I'll tell the listener a little behind the scenes stuff we have a really good outline put together and then I kind of was reading rereading over some of my notes from some other disaster stuff I was involved in in my other career and uh, I'm like, man, this is really good stuff. So we're going to mishmash these two things together that we've we've talked about, and hopefully at the end of it, there'll be some really cool lessons learned here, and at least uh, start the the 
your own mental wheels to turn and, and to figure out what you may or may not need in your own personal situations. Definitely, man. And Rich, did you see the show Doomsday Preppers? I have seen that was a there was a several episodes. Yeah, I, I, I think I did see some of those. So I think I think that show was maybe one of the best and worst things that happened to the prepping community. Best in the fact that it it brought a lot like you you saw a lot of good ideas on that show. I don't know how wise putting those on television uh, actually was, but it also did some bad things in that it made some of these people look a little bit crazy. And it they all every single episode they would ask the prepper what are you preparing for? Or they would frame the show as in John is preparing for a nuclear attack or Dave and his wife are preparing for an earthquake or some very, very specific scenario. And I think that's fine. I think it's fine to be prepared for a very specific thing. But I think you should also be prepared, like we're going to talk about, well, let's back up. If you're prepared for that nuclear event or that hurricane, probably also prepared just for the power to go out or just for, you know, some flash flooding or just for some smaller scale disasters, right? Yeah, I I agree with you. I thought that was weird because I know those preppers were probably like, no, I'm not just preparing for an earthquake. I'm preparing for a host of things. But yeah, I... (laughs) I, okay, I'm, I'm going to confess here. The one thing that really turned me off about 90% of these uh, really well-intentioned people were that they had completely neglected their own physical fitness, a lot of them. Uh, they didn't take that into account whatsoever. And I'm like, you know what? You are the one that's going to go through this disaster. It isn't a gadget or a gizmo. It's you, your physical body, uh, your mind, your spirit, and it's like that wasn't even take. You know what I mean? It's just like, come on, man. The the best gadget you can buy is something to get your ass in shape. You and Mike on the American Warrior Show are fond of saying the best accessory you can buy for your gun is a gym membership, and that's that's absolutely right, man. And kind of on in that same vein, my parents several years ago decided to get their uh, concealed carry permits, so they went through the little state mandated class. And it just so happens I know the guy that taught it. And they were telling me some of the things that he talked about in class. And he was saying he never goes anywhere that he can't bring his gun. He always sits with his back to the wall. He always, you know, basically this state of hypervigilance. And the thing I know about the guy is he's probably 100 pounds overweight. He chain smokes cigarettes. And it's like, man, you like the threat's inside your body right now. You, like, Yeah, you're your threat, brother. Yeah. You're, you're a threat to your damn self. And I, that some of that hypervigilance stuff is is ridiculous. Uh, Rory Miller, who we had on my other show, who's written some phenomenal books um, on violence and things of this nature, he will often start his seminars by saying, you know, what what's an appropriate social distance? And let's talk about how, you know, how hypervigilant you should really be and, uh, you know, someone will usually say, well, I never let anybody within arms reach within six feet of me or whatever. And like, okay, cool. And your name was Steve. Thank you, Steve. And then he'll go through most of the class. A couple hours later, he'll be like, um, let me have a demonstrator. Steve, do you mind stepping up here for just a second? And he'll have Steve stand right here. And he'll have Steve stand right next to him. And then he'll freaking trip this guy and put him on his ass. And the point of the matter is, you are going to end up in positions where you are right next to somebody and to think you're never ever ever going to be compromised in that way is is absolutely foolish yeah you can you can and i mean again rich every silo that we could talk about every 
interest area or every topic, there is somebody that is like an, a way, way down the spectrum on it. They are way down the road. That's what they've dedicated their lives to, be it you know defensive driving or defensive shooting and combatives or financial planning and preparedness or preparedness or uh, baking or sewing and crocheting and knitting or whatever. There's somebody that invests all their time, all their money, all their thought energy into that one thing. And that's awesome. We need people like that. But you and I are, are going to go much more generalist with this. And like, this is not where I'm going to spend all my money and all my free time. 100%. And Bill Burr, had, but I, I, I wanted to make that distinction clear that you need to prepare your body uh, more than you just need to have a, a checklist full of shit. And we're going to give you a little bit of a checklist. And yes, if you go to the, the show notes at acrossthepeak.com for, for this episode, you're going to find some amazing resources that will really help you. But I wanted to be clear, Bill Burr uh, is a really funny comedian. I really love his stuff. I've seen him perform live, et cetera. But he has a really funny skit, Justin, where he talks about uh, watching these prepper shows. And he's like, you know what I came away with? If you're not, if you're not considering your defense, you know, using firearms and how to protect the stuff, you're just collecting supplies for the biggest guy on the block. And uh, I think that's true. So I want to get that out of the way because we probably won't talk too much about this on this episode, but you need to be doing combatives. You need to be going to the range. You need to be, uh, you know, being able to pull your ass up over a six or eight foot wall or climb a rope or some of these other things. But anyway. Absolutely, man. And that's one thing that I remarked to Kai yesterday. We did our, we did that whole hike and man, it was, uh, the first mile was flat and, and we've done a couple hikes with our EDC bags since we got them. We did a six miler, we did a five miler and those were both on really flat, really gentle terrain. Well, yesterday we did another six miler and the first mile was flat and then it was two miles straight up and two miles straight down and then you know finish off it was a round trip you know a a mile of flat walking at the end and the thing that occurred to me is dude if you've got an edc bag a bug out bag a go bag a whatever and you have not gotten that thing on your back and got out on foot with it in some different terrain under some different conditions you don't have a bug out bag you have a bag of shit some of which you're going to take with you and some of which you're probably going to figure out you don't need oh spot on man because ounces equal pounds and pounds equal pain so um here's what i would say justin i'm going to ramble about some shit and if you could keep an eye on our notes and make sure that i'm kind of within the bounds or or add on some of the things that i may miss does that sound good Absolutely, man. So let's talk about the first thing I've got on my list. Uh, number one, don't plan, prepare. And I, and I say that because it's, and looking at those preppers is a perfect example. People will try to get caught up in creating this perfect plan and what they should be doing is preparing. And I say that because plans can sometimes have this unintended consequence of pigeonholing our thinking. But if you prepare, you're keeping your mind open to the endless possibilities of what may or may not happen. For example, let's say that that like Hurricane Michael that just blew through here, you might have had a great plan to uh, to deal with the effects of the hurricane, but but I'd rather you be prepared for Hurricane Michael and get the hell out of the path of the storm. Do, would you agree with that? Yeah, no doubt about it. Now, of course, sometimes because of your job or whatever, you you, you can't leave the path, and I I completely understand that. But one of the things that you can do to aid in this preparedness is developing a SWOT analysis. Are you familiar with this? 
I'm not. So SWOT analysis is strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. And you're so you're looking at your current situation in um, in the show notes today. I'm going to have a matrix that you can follow to do your own SWOT analysis. It'll help you specify the objectives that you're trying to achieve and then identify some of the internal and external factors that are either favorable or unfavorable to helping you achieve that objective of staying alive or thriving or whatever it may be. So this is a a great tool to help you prepare. Now, let's say that you do get stuck in uh, a disaster, okay? You, You can't leave. You're in it. There's no way around it. There's also, um, and I know you're probably familiar with this uh, from being in the Marine Corps because we did ORM all the time, Occupational Risk Management. And I think doing one of those assessments is equally important. For instance, I've got to go out in the yard and saw some stuff down because I've had to stay in the storm. Well, before you do that, you probably need to look at what it is you're trying to accomplish and identify some of the hazards and then what risks are associated with those hazards do a risk evaluation, rank the risk, like what is the most likely thing to happen? Can I apply control measures to to implement to keep me safe? If not, is this an acceptable risk or, or not? So that will also be in the show notes. Check that out. Because I think this is this thing that's, that's really important for people to realize that when you go out into these situations or even preparing for these situations, there are inherent risks involved, and you're going to have to deal with those risks. Yeah, you're absolutely right, man. And I'm going to, uh, I, I don't know if you have, a, we haven't talked about this yet, I don't know if you have a book of the week on your mind or not, but I do. I, I have one that uh, ties very, very closely into this. It's called Prepping for Life, and it's by a gentleman named Grant Cunningham. He's very well known in the revolver shooting world, and I'm uh, I'm a fan of revolvers. I have a blog called RevolverGuy.com, and so I read everything this, that this guy writes. He wrote a book about prepping, and one thing that he goes into in, in great detail is this, this book isn't a list of crap you need to have. It's how to think about these problems, how to think about personal safety, uh, family safety, and worst case scenarios, but how to do it in a way that's realistic. And one tool that he uses in there is to define what is possible, what is technically possible within the realm of the world as we know it, what is plausible, and that's a different thing. What is plausible and is much different than what is merely possible and then what is likely and focusing your efforts on those likely scenarios, maybe a little bit on those plausible scenarios and not trying to prepare for every single thing that is possible or not trying to spend a bunch of specialized energy preparing for those things that are theoretically possible, but not very plausible or likely. Yeah, I heard possible Plausible and probable being the third one. Yeah, I like that, that three Ps. And what are some of the things, you know? Number one, it might be, depending on where you live, severe winter weather emergency, right? It could be we're preparing for uh, an EMP type thing from North Korea or some other uh, state actor. Uh, tornadoes, maybe you live in Tornado Alley. Maybe you're living in hurricane and <clears throat> zone and those people that lived in the Florida Panhandle hadn't had a hurricane in forever, but guess what? Uh, you know, then one slams into you. Earthquakes. You know, one of the things that we always looked at here in the state of Tennessee is there's that new Madrid fault line that runs right basically underneath where the Mississippi is. And the last time that it, that it went off, 
there was hardly anybody lived there. It caused the Mississippi River to run backwards and created Real Foot Lake. And it was devastating to the to the cows that lived there and the one or two little uh, log cabins. But nowadays, you you got these major metropolitan areas like Memphis. Um, if that New Madrid earthquake was to happen now, oh my God, you know, it'd be a disaster. And we talked about in planning, like, what would it look like? And basically, you're just flagging people <clears throat> out of the city to get them to some to huge refugee places that we would set up in Middle Tennessee. Maybe you live in a wildfire zone like you talked about, Justin, when you lived in Southern California, or flooding or riots. And, you know, these these kind of things do happen. And I kind of label that as a man-made disaster. But then we got terrorism. And so like you said at the beginning, Justin, uh, these prepper shows that showed one family preparing for one specific event probably is not realistic. Right. And then one thing we're not going to touch on too much in this episode is a personal disaster. We talked uh, last two weeks ago about preparing yourself and planning for the, for a house fire. That's a personal disaster. And man, that is probably much more likely than a terrorist attack in your city, probably much more likely than a lot of these things. You should absolutely be preparing for that because it's very, very likely. It's very high up on that list. You should also be preparing for a personal disaster like losing your job, getting laid off. Um, and, and that preparedness takes a slightly different form. But, you, man, you should absolutely be preparing for those very likely personal disasters as well. And and I, I agree with you 100%. And I think when you do that, it means a careful review of what actually kills people in those types of disasters. So during one of the disaster relief operations that I managed, um, we had integrated care teams. And what those teams did was they helped the families that were killed grieve uh, with the, their, the loss of their loved one. <clears throat> when I looked at the fatalities from that the last disaster relief operation I ran was, uh, number one was hypothermia. This was a winter-related disaster. Uh, number two was carbon monoxide poisoning. Uh, number three was lack of medical care. And number four, motor vehicle death. So I, I wanted to say that because I want to point this this out. None of the people died. None of the 30-plus fatalities died from starvation or dehydration, even though this disaster lasted for more than three weeks. Part of the reason for that was you had free food pantries that operated in all the affected areas, and, and they're, they're going to operate in any localized disaster that you're probably going to be involved in. Uh, and that none none of them died because they didn't have the creature comforts that we expect, like a, oh, a nice warm shower and clean clothes. <clears throat> But if you decide to stay in your house without adequate warmth, I'm going to tell you right now, man, as the temperatures drop below zero, they can and will kill you. If you try to run a generator in your basement because you're afraid someone might steal it, guess what? That carbon monoxide is going to come into your house and it's going to freaking kill you. You decide to get out on an icy road, uh, guess what, man? It, it can kill you. And finally, if you don't have medical supplies necessary to facilitate your basic biological functions, whether you're a diabetic or you have to have a CPAP machine or... You, you, you have a heart condition, you need those medications. If you don't have them, man, uh, when the disaster strikes, it's probably going to kill you. So those are things to consider when you're conducting your own SWOT analysis. And once again, you can find that in the show notes. Yeah, absolutely. Let's talk about enabling conditions. And I think this is important. This is number two. Uh, enabling conditions are stuff like your own physical fitness, which we, we beat to death at the beginning of the show. And when, when I say that, 
please understand, I'm not saying you need to be able, you need to be ready to, to go try out for MARSOC to survive a disaster, but you do need to be able to hike a rucksack full of groceries back home for miles, you know what I'm saying, carry uh, carry a sick family member to a vehicle or, or something like that. Would you agree? Yeah, I totally agree, man. Preparing your body uh, to be able to to be able to move your body, to make it more resilient, to make it uh, stronger in the face of some sort of adversity is probably the single biggest and best thing you can do to to prepare yourself for any kind of a disaster, regardless of what it is. Yeah, because when you're in that adrenalized state, you know, you got all these adrenal hormones dumping into your system and it's, you know, if your body's not used to that, you know, it could do damage to your heart and all these other uh, organs. But anyway... Let's talk about another enabling condition, firearms, defensive, survival, tactical training and tools and all this other accoutrement. They are important. Go ahead, man. Actually, before you um, before you jump back or before you jump into another, let's talk about one other thing health wise. And this is going to be especially important uh, maybe for a long term disaster is keep your damn teeth in order because if man if you have teeth problems if you get a tooth abscess and can't make it to a dentist you're going to be in absolute misery you're not going to be able to focus on anything else you're not going to be effective at anything else uh, get your teeth looked at get those things in in good working order and keep them that way um, and also like rich mentioned earlier if you have medical conditions you need to be prepared to deal with those things you don't need to have just this week's supply of whatever it is, whatever life-saving medication you might be on, you need to have a stockpile of that. And and I'd say talk to your physician and tell them you want to stay, you know, 45 days out or or whatever the case may be. If there's a huge regional scale disaster, yeah, you're, you're probably, you know, you're probably going to be able to get food and water and stuff, but getting some of those specialized medications in that area might take a little longer, might be a little more difficult. Yes. I would tell a personal story on that, man. God, I'm, you're so spot on. My wife, I was in a combat zone uh, as a younger man, and my wife sent me a bag of Starburst in one of my little care packages. And um, I don't know why, because I've never really been a fan. But anyway, she sent them to me, and I'm chewing on my little strawberry Starburst, like the first one out of the package. I'm giving them to my buddies, and, and it pulls a damn filling out of my tooth. And we're in the middle of nowhere, and I'm in freaking agony. And um, the battalion surgeon, you know, he he can't do anything about it, and he gives me some codeine to ease the pain. And the next morning, they put me on a uh, in the back of a Humvee on top of the mailbags, and I I'm on a six hour bumpy ride back to get my tooth fixed um, in a Condex box somewhere down south. All that shit. Now, what would have happened if there was no uh, dentist around? So you're, you're absolutely right, Justin. Dude, that sounds absolutely miserable. And yeah, I, I want nothing to do with that. No. So so back onto the firearms, defensive tools, and all this other stuff. They are important. You know, uh, They can aid in your home or personal security. They can help harvest wildlife for food. They can provide all kinds of additional options. But without the proper training, you may be unprepared to use them defensively or to harvest game or food. I mean, if you don't know how to do that, don't think you're going to figure it out on a YouTube video because that shit ain't going to be working. And without ammunition, your firearms are nothing more than expensive paperweights. And I know that you and I both believe in having thousands of rounds of ammunition on hand uh, just in case, but also to train with. So I would say take your firearms and edge weapon training seriously 
Um, as far as ammunition is concerned, I don't know what what do you think, Justin, is a is a reasonable amount for your average uh, firearms guy. Uh, well, for me, man, th- this is a complicated topic, and we could probably do an entire episode on this. For me, it's more about insulating myself from cost fluctuations than anything else. Um, like it's for me, that's really important. Ammo is about as cheap as it's been in I don't know ten or fifteen years, and it's not going to get any cheaper. I can guarantee you that. What I can also guarantee is it's going to go back up in price. So I buy a lot and I keep a lot on hand. So when it does go back up, I can continue my regularly scheduled range range sessions without a massive increase in cost. As far as having on hand for some sort of disaster, man, like, let's be honest, you're probably going to be able to do everything you need to do with a bolt action rifle with five rounds. I would say have some. I wouldn't get too wrapped around the axle of I need an AR-15 and 100 magazines and 10,000 rounds of ammo. Man, you're, you, if you're finding yourself in a fight like that, you're, you're, you've are, something's already gone wrong. You, you're not going to make it, pal. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to give you another story, dude, because this is when uh, the idea of having a, a quite a bit of ammo at home really hit home with me. So uh, during an, this uh, ice storm, uh, the street that I live on out here in the county, and you know it well, it was blocked off on both ends by, dozens and dozens of trees that had fallen down and and power poles and there was absolutely no way to get off the street well right down the road from where i live there's a street i won't say the name of it but there's a lot of uh i'm just gonna say it they they do math down there they're members of the ku klux klan on this particular road well they had access to my street and one night during the storm, you know, we hadn't heard anybody travel down this road for days. And all of a sudden, I hear the rumblings of these vehicles coming. And there was a caravan of probably six vehicles, all kinds of stuff, uh, four-wheel drives, uh, tractors, everything. They were flying Rebel flags, Jolly Rogers flags, all this shit. And they're all shining uh, these giant searchlights in everybody's windows. And I'm like, I don't know what the hell they're looking for, but they're just shining them in the uh, windows and every now and then they would turn the vehicles off and just listen like they were on a patrol and then they'd fire them back up and move down the road another couple hundred yards and they'd shut everything down and listen and i'm like and you only thing you could hear in the silence was my neighbors my one of my neighbors had a um, gasoline power generator running and i'm like man if you know, if they tried to assault my house, six to eight vehicles loaded with heavily armed men, and you could, I'm looking out there, and I can see that they got rifles, and I'm like, holy shit! You know, how would I, how would I be able to fight this, this off? Like you said, you're you're in trouble because there's no backup coming. There's no way that anybody can get down this road for you know probably a day just cutting trees to get to get the uh, to get down the road. So it. It made me seriously consider having additional ammo, having magazines loaded just in case something like that ever happened. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I hear hear you and I don't disagree. And I think in a rural place like that, yeah, man, something like that could happen. But also in an urban environment, man, there's a lot of people in an urban environment. But uh, again, I, I mean, if you're going through... Um, if you're going through more than, I'm going to say two magazines on your AR-15, like things are probably bad. uh, Yeah. And, and, um, you know, you got to realize, man, you're one person, maybe two people. Um, if, if there's, I, anytime you get into any kind of confrontation with anybody, your risk of being injured or killed 
rises to above zero percent. Yeah. So uh, uh, significantly, uh, and if you know if there's ten against one, man, like you can watch all the action movies you want, but uh, you ain't gonna make it. Probably, mm-hmm. yeah, it's probably not. Well, I, I mean, you might, but the odds are definitely not in your favor. But yeah, I, I'm all for having some uh, some personal protection. Um, but you know, as as far as just uh, the amount of ammo you need to have, I, I guess that goes back to your, uh, to your preferred weapon system and, and whatever. Um, and, and, you know, I, I have the, the reason I'm saying this, the reason I'm beating around the bush and caveating so much is I don't want, I don't want to present this as an intimidating thing to someone that, uh, I know we have listeners that have never fired a gun before, never owned a gun. It, you don't need to, you don't need 10 guns with 10,000 rounds of ammo and thousands of dollars worth of, optics and magazines and all this stuff, but you need something. Yeah. And and just full disclosure, man, I own one rifle. I own one shotgun and three handguns. So I'm not some weirdo prepper with a a gun case full of crap. Uh, So maybe it's as simple as Justin, you know, having a a few magazines loaded, preloaded, because that was really the thing that was driving that thought is I don't even have an AR mag loaded. You know, I have an, an AR that's sighted in, and I certainly could run it effectively to handle the issue at these ranges, but I, how long would it take me to load three magazines and knowing where the ammo is to load those magazines? So something as simple as that level of preparedness, having some mags preloaded, probably is enough. Let's talk about coalitions, because I think you—this is the third thing I want to talk about uh, under the enabling conditions, building a coalition— the top, the time to have these alliances already laid out is is before you know while the sun's still shining, because every one of your neighbors probably possesses a unique skill set that that can come in handy. So, for example, like in my community, my buddy Mike, he can repair anything. You know, my father, he can repair anything, but he's also a retired electrician, so he can get the power going again. Perhaps our buddy Frank is a skilled woodworker. Uh, Joel is a computer tech. Uh, my buddy KP is a skilled farrier and hunter. He can help me take care of my horses. He can help me hunt wild game. Uh, Ed is a plumber. So I think creating these types of neighborhood alliances, if you will, um, because like you said, 10 against one, not not good odds for you. But maybe if you can swing that back in your direction by creating these alliances, probably a good thing. Now, I'm not saying that your little group needs to wear matching uh, hoodies and all this bullshit and have monthly barbecues, secret handshakes. What I am saying is, you do need to maybe be friendly enough to break bread with them once in a while and let them know that, hey, if things go down, you can count on me for this, and I sure could use you know your electrical skills or what have you. What do you think? I, I agree, man. And uh, I, you know, I think that is useful in some kind of self-defense scenario, but I think that's the very unlikely scenario compared with just repairing a roof that a limb has busted through or, you know, taking care of these very, very basic needs, especially when you're looking at things like hurricanes and tornadoes and, and that sort of thing. Having somebody that you know you can count on is greatly facilitated by you being that same thing to that other person, being a person that they can count on to help them get the horses in if they need to or help them, uh, you know, help them fix their barn if if something goes wrong or, or that sort of thing, right? Yeah, exactly. So like during this winter-related disaster where we were all trapped on our street for uh, probably close to a week, 
uh, I let everybody know, hey, look, if you want a cup of coffee in the morning, we have a wood burn stove. If you need to come get warm because you don't have power, come on over here, hang out here, stay here. Our place was a safe place for the people in the community to come to during the during the day or, or at night if they needed to. And we did have people stay. So we talked about number one. Don't plan, prepare. We talked about number two. You need to find out what your what these enabling conditions are that are going to help you not only survive but thrive. And let's talk about the third thing, and that is uh, staying put. Okay. So, if you decide that you're going to break out, understand that it doesn't mean everything's going to work out well for you. I already talked about I could not break out, but. Let's say you are, you know, uh, on one of the other shows, we talked about, Justin, that there was a semi that overturned on Interstate 40 and resulting in a 12-mile backup, 675 vehicles stranded in sub-zero temperatures. And uh, like we talked about, we got the National Guard Humvees going to do welfare checks on the stranded motorists, et cetera. And finally, we had to get them uh, vectored into a shelter. So I would say that if you need to get out, if you have to get out, then maybe you need to get out. But if not, maybe stay put is the best option. I would say it's almost always the best option because the one thing you're going to have in most circumstances by stay, just by virtue of staying put is some form of shelter. Uh, once you start moving, that shelter becomes much more tenuous, much more... Uh, yeah much more up in the air, much of more of an open-ended question of where we're going to stay, where we're going to sleep, where we're going to get warm. <clears throat> you also have a lot more stuff at your disposal. If you stay put, I'm a, even if you no, go ahead, buddy. No, I, I was just going to say, even if you don't have, you know, quote unquote preparedness food, you still have your whole pantry full of stuff that you can put stuff together out of and and that sort of thing. I'm a big fan of staying put unless you absolutely have to get out of that area. But as you mentioned earlier, if there's a hurricane rolling through, I'd rather you be out of that area and, you know, drive up to your folks and South Carolina or whatever. I don't know. Yeah, so I think and that's a great distinction and I want to let's be clear about that. This is sheltering place because it, it came in like a, 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 you know, overnight. You didn't see it coming. This civil unrest or, or this a nuclear emergency that's happened in a, a place near you, whatever. There was no way for you to get out of the path. Now, if there's a way to get out of the path, get the hell out of the out of the way of the storm. And But you need to prepare your home for follow-on disaster. And the, one of the best ways you can do is by boarding up your doors and windows to protect against, you know, looters, intruders, and all this other stuff. And um, I'll put this in the show notes, but Torx Head makes some really good screws for this that they're tamper-proof. And I'll, anybody that lives in these kind of hurricane-prone areas will tell you that the time to prefab the boards to board up your doors and windows is when the sun is shining. You can't do it in the midst of a disaster. So if you do live in those areas, I would encourage you to have those prefabricated boards ready. Have the cordless drill ready. Have the tamper-proof screws ready so that if you do decide to bug out, you're not going to have a problem coming back. When you come back home and everybody else is looted, guess what? When they see that you're using those tamper-proof Torx head screws, they're probably going to go down to the next house. But if you are uh, there, I would encourage you to stay there because if you do have to get out, like that, like those people, Justin, that were stranded in that backup, we vectored them into a shelter, and you will find you know, food and warmth and medical and psychological aid in those shelters, and that's cool, but a lot of times you can't take your pets there. You certainly cannot be armed there. You may be um, 
uh, asked to sleep separate from your family. You know, a lot of times those shelters, they will break them down, uh, men over here and women over there. You know, the other thing I would tell you about shelters, just since we're on the subject of it, people that are in there, man, oftentimes uh, there's the elderly in there, the homeless, people with mental illness, physical and intellectual debilities, and you're going to be right there. And if you're an able-bodied man, like most of our listeners, able-bodied man or woman for that matter, like most of our listeners are, then you're going to be asked to pitch in with the cooking and clinging and all the other kind of things that it takes to run a shelter. Yeah, so I would say if you are going to leave, and and this is kind of why my EDC bag is the way it is, and it doesn't have, you know, a jet boil and a tent and a sleeping bag and all that stuff in it, is probably where I'm going to leave and go to is I'm going to go to Rich's house, or I'm going to drive up to my parents' house, or I'm going to go uh, stay with a friend. I, you know, being in the military, I've got friends all over the country. That's probably what my disaster looks like. And if I can't do that, I have had the financial foresight to have money and lines of credit that will put me in hotel rooms and not, if, if at all possible, not put me at the, if I can get out of that area, not put me at the mercy of essentially the government putting me into a, uh, into some sort of shelter where I can't take my pets. I can't be armed. Uh, and I can't, you know, potentially be separated, uh, from sleeping with my family and that sort of thing. So, um, back to that financial planning, back to being, uh, being prepared for this will take you out of that situation where you're pretty much powerless. Yeah, totally. Um, so we talked about don't plan, prepare. Number two, we talked about our enabling conditions. Number three, we talked about sheltering in place. Now we're going to get to the one that probably everybody gets excited about, right? The general survival and disaster relief supplies, you know, the, the, the actual things that you can tangibly put your hands on. And I would encourage you, you don't need to start getting this stuff together until you've conducted that SWOT analysis and stuff like that. So uh, I'm going to start this list. And again, this is not a comprehensive list. You and I uh, come at these things with completely different uh, thoughts. So I'm, I'm very excited to hear your thoughts. I'm also not necessarily going to tell you, we've already done the EDC episode for your go bag, your kit bag, whatever. So we've already kind of talked about that. We're going to have a, another discussion at another podcast about vehicle preparedness, what goes in the vehicle to make it. So that pre-selected bug out vehicle that you have uh, thought about, what needs to go in there. So we're not going to we're not going to do that with this one. This list is just going to be some things to think about. Uh, and uh, I would like to start probably with water, man. You know, it's a necessity for life, Justin. Um, well, but before we get started with the stuff, let's talk about duration. How, how long should people be planning to basically take care of themselves? And and also back to kind of why this is important. Like you said earlier, nobody nobody died from starvation, even though you know, these disasters are sometimes days or potentially weeks in length. People die from hypothermia and lack of medica- medical care and all that stuff. Um, let's talk about duration. I want to also put a point on why this is important. Even though food will be made available to people, I think it's kind of your responsibility because if everybody in the city that I live in or that I live right outside of, right outside of had Five, let's say arbitrarily five days of food, and and that was widely known, and everybody knew that. 
that would definitely free up a lot of relief effort to probably do more important things and make sure everybody's fed. It's kind of your responsibility to be able to be on your on your own for a little while without somebody having to step in and take care of you. Yeah, I totally agree, man. A duration of five to ten days of, of food is is probably if you have that, you're you're going to be one of the ones that they don't have to worry about. Yeah, and uh, so what kind of duration are are we talking about here, Rich? Well, and I'll just give give you a backstage pass to one of the food considerations we had um, because everybody's you know oh my god you know people are starving to death and this was like uh, probably within the first twenty four to forty eight hours and just a, a note. We're talking about the region that's up here on the Cumberland Plateau. So there's no disaster relief supplies uh, in quantity that are stationed up on the plateau. They're at major metropolitan areas. But what was unique about this specific disaster that that I'm talking about or that got my thinking going was they would have to be trucked up here. Well, that that sounds cool, and it briefs really well. We'll just truck the supplies up. But when you have a, a inch of ice on the roads, you're not getting them up here. So you have what you have. So when uh, one of the things that I don't remember if it was me or one of the guys on my staff come up with was the the um, kids can't go to school, probably not going to go to school for at least a week or two. Why don't we go and raid all of the schools in these counties? I'm like, hmm, can we do that? So we contacted the school boards. We got somebody to say, look, if you give me something in writing that I don't have to go pay for this stuff, that's not a problem. So we reached out literally to the U.S. Department of Agriculture and said, look, we're in an emergency. Can we raid these schools? Will you uh, pay for us to restock the, the schools? And thankfully, some bureaucrats said, absolutely, go for it. So then we literally took trucks over to the schools, stole everything we could. You know, sometimes we had to break into the schools to get the stuff out. And we were able to take that and, and create a food pantry. But to your point... Let that food that we had to to pilfer go to people that really need it and not you because you're a thoughtful listener. You're a competent and dangerous individual. You're listening to this podcast. You need to have, what, what, Justin, five to ten days or five days? I would say absolute minimum three uh, for food, water, heat, all that stuff. Absolute minimum. But uh, I would say ten days should probably be kind of the goal. So somewhere within that bracket – uh, three, five, seven, ten days. Uh, I would say start out with let's get our act together and know we're good for three days and kind of build on that. I again back with the generalist theme with this. I wouldn't try to push that out to a month, to ninety days, to a year's worth of food and water and stuff on hand because then you get into massive expense. Even if uh, your only expense is storage space, even if you can get all your crap for free, you still have to put it somewhere. So. You know, again, back with the 80-20 principle, uh, having enough stuff for three days, five days is probably going to deal with 80% of the problems you're going to have or, or that you that are plausible for you to encounter, but it's only going to be that 20% effort to get there. Yeah, totally. So um, I guess with all those caveats, we're ready to talk about water, right? So let's talk about it. Yeah. If your pipes freeze and burst, man, um, you're going to have to cut the water off to your house, right? So ensure that you know how to cut that water uh, or gas off or whatever. You know, we talked about maybe in another episode having that water key close by and that everybody knows how to use it. Well, the same thing for a gas key if you have that. 
plumbers are at a premium and a disaster. So I would tell you that when it comes to water, make sure that you know some common, uh, you know, how to fix some common plumbing problems by yourself. So if that means that you need to have just a couple sticks of PVC on hand, a few couplers and some cement and cleaner to make a quick patch, probably not a bad idea. It certainly help you be more resilient in the long term, but um, and then and, and, and one other thing on that, back to don't plan, prepare. You want to do a good winterizing on your home, especially on your water pipes. I fell victim to this. The first house I ever owned, we got a freak winter storm. I lived, uh, I was living down at Camp Lejeune, and they don't get a lot of snow down there. They don't get a lot of super cold weather. It's almost a subtropical climate, but they got a freak storm. It froze for several days. And I had a burst pipe outside, and the thing is, I didn't even know it was burst uh, for probably for several hours. My neighbor came over and he's like, "Hey, man, you got a river running out of your uh, running out of your driveway." And I, it was a side of the house I never went to, so I walked out there, and this thing is just pouring water. And I ended up having like, I don't know, a twelve hundred dollar water bill or something outrageous. Unfortunately. They were able to forgive most of that, but uh, winterize. The time to do this is now, not in the middle of March when it's you know when it's everything's been frozen solid for two months. The time to do this stuff is now. Yeah, totally. And, and you just stole my next thing. It was uh, make sure your pipes are well insulated. You can go to Lowe's right now or Home Depot, whatever, and they're going to have those. Um, uh, what is it, that black insulating stuff? It comes in like four-foot sticks. or It's super cheap. I'm not talking about nothing, a dollar or two. Buy some of those, crawl around your crawl space, and put that stuff on there, and it will protect you. But if you can't, then, then you need to leave your water running. Uh, I've read different things on this. Some people say you know it needs the stream needs to be almost as big as a pencil. I would tell you that's probably not necessary, but... If you if your pipes are not that well insulated and you know the temperatures are going to dip well below freezing, it's probably not a bad idea to leave the water trickling a little bit. It's got to be more than a drip, but that will make sure that your pipes don't freeze and burst. Okay, second thing is, well, not the second thing, but another thing is water in the bathtubs. As soon as we lost power, and it was a, a you know this, during this winter. Uh, weather disaster, I'm like, okay, let's fill up every freaking bathtub we can. And you need that because we have some animals outside. Once the power went off, the trough heaters don't work anymore. So they're the the trough that they drink out of is going to freeze over quickly. So we needed water to boil and drink potentially for ourselves. You need water to flush the toilets with. And um, if your town's water becomes contaminated, because a lot of these floods that they have going on right now in Texas will contaminate the water supply. So having that backup, that little bit of limited backup water in your tubs is probably a great idea. Yeah, <clears throat> and they they make products. This is extremely popular in the prepping community called a water bob. It's basically this giant plastic bag you put in your bathtub and you can fill up if you know some sort of disaster is coming. Um, the generally accepted rule for drinking water or, or water that you drink and prepare food with and all that stuff is one gallon per person per day. And if you have pets, kind of have three large dogs. And let me tell you, brother, if they drink some damn water, you need to be prepared to uh, to to give water to them too. Yeah. And we have uh, f- freshwater lakes and streams uh on, on the property and then around the property. So I can definitely use that water 
but only if you have water purification tablets like we talked about in a previous episode. So keep that in mind. And then, like you said, uh, according to ready.gov, you know, you should, like you said, Justin, have at least one gallon of water per person per day. Now, when you think about that, think of it in context of three quarts of water that you need to drink and then one quart of water that you need for personal hygiene. Of course, everybody's personal needs will vary depending on their age or their health or physical condition, diet, blah, blah, blah. But like you said, don't forget the pets. So um, anyway, medical emergencies will also require additional water. So that's one other thing. If you live in a hotter climate, guess what? Your water needs will probably double. One final thing on water, man, and I know you and I were talking about this recently, uh, not on a show, but just chit-chatting about it. When you're thinking about storing bottled water or having bottled water on hand, the Food and Drug Administration has determined that there really is no limit to the shelf life of bottled water. Over the years, it will uh, get a you know there will be some of the leaching of the plastics into the water, and so the taste will get off after several years. But but it doesn't mean that the water is bad at all. So please load up on that so that you have your long term water needs met. <clears throat> yeah, and and we have talked about having some sort of water purification capability. And for this, I would strongly recommend against. A water purification tablets as your sole methodology. I would strongly advocate for some sort of water filtration system. I have a Berkey water filter, which is, uh, it actually filters water so well, it's considered a water purifier. And what a water filter will do for you in some cases, and they get very, very specific. So you have to look first. If we have things like sewers flooded, you know, flooding with contaminated water, I can pour that water in my Berkey and know with 100% certainty, I'm going to get nothing but water out the bottom, nothing but clean water out the bottom of that thing, because the filter is so tight and filters out pretty much everything. One thing water purification tablets will not do for you is take solids out of the water They will kill any living organisms, but they won't take solids out of the water and they won't take chemicals out of the water. So if you, you know, if there's contaminated area that's contaminated with heavy metals, contaminated with some sort of chemical runoff or even runoff from the high, you know, the roads, there's gas and oil and antifreeze and all that stuff on the road. You and that's in the water that you're collecting. You need a way to filter that out and render that drinkable. Totally. So let's talk about artificial climate as the next thing. Um, you're going to need some supplemental heat and our cooling system to create a livable, sustainable climate for yourself and your loved ones, right? So think about a generator because a generator can run a window air conditioning unit uh, you could use wood or kerosene or propane for a heat source uh, because you're definitely going to want to preserve those kilowatts that your generator uses. So if, if the generator can run something and you can let the wood or kerosene or propane do its job to create warmth, I think that's a good thing. Now, I will tell you that kerosene in, in disasters that I've been a part of is one of the first things that we that uh, I've seen run out. And you may have to go hours away to a non-affected area to be able to get additional kerosene or propane. So I would tell you to lay on a lot of it on hand. Personally, we keep uh, two five-gallon jugs of kerosene up here uh, at on our farm. Justin, do you do you have anything on that? Uh, I don't have a kerosene heater currently, but I have used one in the. I have owned one in the past, and I have used it as emergency heat. And I'll just tell you, about uh, running that thing, 
you know, during the during waking hours, say running it, I don't know, 10 hours a day or so, I could keep my house or I could close off and keep a living area of my house warm on about, I don't know, about a gallon and a half, two gallons of kerosene a day. Does that sound about right? It's, it's, yeah, no, that sounds it's been right. a little mm-hmm. while, but, uh, yeah, you definitely want to have some of this stuff on hand. Like you said, man, hypothermia is a killer in any kind of winter, winter weather disaster. So you absolutely need to be prepared for that. And kerosene, it, it's pretty safe. It creates a, um, a, a really nice heat. It might give off a little bit of funky odors, but, uh, that, that'd probably be my go-to. You can buy one of these kerosene heaters for, I don't know, a hundred, 150 bucks. Yeah. A hundred, 150 bucks. And like you said, I, normally they have a two gallon reservoir and I believe eight hours is about what you're going to get out of the reservoir. And, and sometimes that's all you need for that supplemental heat. But when you think about your all hazards preparedness plan, think about, uh, and Justin, you've mentioned this in another show, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of human needs. And at the bottom of that is your safety and psychological needs got to be met first. So artificial climate may sound like, eh, I'll suck it up, but you don't need to plan and prepare for it. And, and so let's talk about power. And any natural man-made disaster, whatever, civil unrest, a generator is going to be incredibly important, I have found. And you got, but in order to have one, you, you got to have a means to secure it or somebody's just going to come along and take it. Uh, one of the things that I saw during the disasters I worked with the Red Cross is when the disaster strikes, people are going to come and get the generators. If they got to break into the store and steal them, they're going to get them or they're going to just simply buy everyone that you can get. And uh, Lowe's and some of the other big box retailers are really good about knowing that and they will shift around their, their supply and logistics chains, will reallocate those uh Generators are not being used maybe in South Dakota, and they'll put them on tractor trailers and get them to the affected areas. But that means that there are going to be a lot of people waiting in the Walmart parking lot, uh, a Lowe's parking lot, whatever, to get a generator. And we saw dozens of men carrying rifles and, and just openly carrying firearms, and they would have their entire family out there waiting in the cars with the engines running in the hopes that in six hours, like they'd been towed by the Lowe's employee, some, uh, some trailer's going to arrive and they can buy a uh, generator. So I'm telling you, the time to buy this thing is now. Yeah, and unfortunately, man, as we're going through this, I, the location I live in, the apartment that I live in, I can't have a lot of these things uh, just because there's no space to store them. And even if I had a generator, I, I would have to plug stuff directly into it rather than... Uh, uh, wire my, I, I couldn't wire this apartment to switch over to generator power. But, uh, yeah, if you have the capability to do that and, and this becomes very, some of these things become very personalized depending on your living situation, but do as much of the stuff now as you can. Yeah. And I'm not trying to, I, I don't want to be alarmist uh, because I'm thinking about what I'm about to say in that, uh, we saw the Several of the uh, big big box retailers looted, uh, not just here, but in uh, certainly other places in America. And if you've ever had the misfortune of seeing a looted Walmart, if that doesn't get you in the mindset to stay at home and be well prepared, nothing will. Uh, and I took some photos. Maybe I'll, I'll put of what a looted Walmart looked like. Some photos I po- personally took, and, and just to give you an idea of what you can expect. So. Um, Think about your power supply before the need arises. If you live in an apartment like maybe you do, Justin, um, then it's going to be almost impossible to do. But 
If you do live somewhere where you can do it, make sure you have it and the extension cords necessary and a means to secure it. Communications, man, I'll tell you, with smartphones, you know, you're going to be able to communicate with the outside world. You're going to be able to monitor the news, the weather, the social media for updates, etc. But when the towers go down or become overloaded, you're in trouble. Yeah, no kidding, man. Um, and regardless, you know, back to our EDC episode, you need to have a way to keep this thing charged if there's not power. So having a pre-charged battery pack, having, a, you know, maybe a solar charger or something along those lines, you need a way to keep this thing charged. And and to your point, yeah, it's going to be really, really tough uh, on that cellular network when, when things are down. The network itself might be down. So, uh, yeah, yeah. Having a way to communicate gets uh, gets pretty tricky. What's your recommendation on this? Well, I think to your point, you know, a hand crank or solar powered radio uh, can can perform some of the functions that of, of these devices without you know relying on the uh, electronic power grid or even battery power. But if you're, this is where we talk about uh, batteries and stuff like that. And I will tell you that I had that happen to me at the time. I did not have one of those little. Uh, battery things to plug in so what we would do is have to go out start the vehicle up and run precious gasoline just to power our electronic devices and that was stupid but it's all we had it's all we could do at that time years ago before i really figured out that that was a problem yep and back to uh back to what we were saying in the vehicle episode recently keep some gas in your tank you if you do have to run your vehicle to charge devices to if you're running some sort of inverter to power some you know power some small things or charge some small things you you don't want to be uh starting that disaster out with an eighth of a tank of gas correct so on the subject of communications though you know we uh we have a uh we did a blog post on the site about some of the disaster relief and first aid apps that are out there they're free so when the smartphone is working you can definitely take care of those uh take advantage of those apps there's another app that we have here in the state of tennessee it's um, by tdot tennessee department of transportation and it's a pretty cool app man that allows you to see the highways and roadways so you can actually go on there and look at any part of the uh, interstates in the state of tennessee by using the state's highway cameras so i say that because in terms of military operations, we know that actionable intelligence drives operations. And if you want to get out of the area, you're going to have to know what you're getting into. So if, find out if your state has that tool. I think it's pretty cool. Yeah, definitely, man. Okay, medical. Uh, I, this is kind of a weird one, the way I've got it lumped together, but medical and, I, and identification. Bleeding in a disaster is a bad thing for a host of of reasons. So having combat bandages, hemostatic agents, tourniquets, etc., are an absolute must. Not just for uh, you know these kind of disasters, but basically any emergency. Yeah, from a car wreck that you drive up on to you know a, some sort of accident around your house with a cooking knife or all kinds of things. And I would say, Rich, much more important than having the stuff is having the knowledge to actually use that stuff. You can have a grocery bag full of hemostatic agents, but if you don't know how to use those things and what their use cases are and when they're contraindicated, they're, you might as well not even have them because they're not going to do you any good. I would say the knowledge on you know some basic first aid, take a damn Red Cross first aid class or take a first responder class or something, is way, way, way more important than the equipment 
because if you had to, you could improvise the equipment if you have the knowledge in your head. You're not going to improvise that knowledge with a bag full of equipment. Yeah, and if we're saying hemostatic agents and you're driving down the road scratching your head, I don't know what the hell that is, then you know that your knowledge is lacking. If we say you know you need to have a fully stocked IFAC kit and need to know how to use it and you don't know what an IFAC is, it's just an individual first aid kit. Um but like you said, you can have the, the most, I can hand you the most well-stocked first aid kit that money can buy, but if you don't know how to use it, you're not helping freaking anybody. So there are great resources that you can find uh, on the Red Cross website to find out when they're having their next little four-hour class, go and take it. Help take your whole family and get them trained in it, right? Definitely, man. This is a thing that will benefit everybody throughout the in, their entire life, whether a disaster ever strikes you or not. Having some first aid knowledge is something that everyone should have. Yeah, and, and once you've taken that, are you going to be able to perform surgery and all this other crap? Absolutely not. Uh, but you might be able to buy enough time to get your loved one to an emergency room, and really that's all we're talking about. And here's another thing. you know, As the medications run out, let me pause there. I should have said this from the beginning. When you and I were in the Marine Corps or working in various government capacities and we're going all over the road, all over the world, one of the things that we had uh, was a logistics train, right? There was always, I never went without food or water or ammunition anywhere in the world I was at. I, I could focus on my mission and not have to worry about those things because they were being supplied by uh, hundreds of other Marines from the United States all the way to the area of operation. Would you agree? Yeah, definitely, man. So, I, I'm, okay, I want to I want to make that distinction because of what I'm about to say. Nowadays, you and I, as just John Q. Citizen, we have to be our own log train. We have to provide our own supplies. We have to provide our own medical care and some of these other basic things. So I say that to say when your medications start running out and you look around to the log train, it's not going to be there. You have to be your own logistics train. Um, So you may need a month's supply of prescription and non-prescription medications for your entire family, including your pets. You need to have these medications not only written down, but if you have specific prescriptions that need to be filled, I would encourage you to have those prescriptions at hand in case you do have to bug out and go to another location. You can take that prescription right to the the local pharmacy and get those things taken care of. That goes for eyeglasses and hearing aids as well. Would you agree? Yep. Because without those eyeglasses, man, you are, you're not going to be terribly effective. Yeah. And, and any known allergies also for, for your family members. And it wouldn't hurt to have, um, you know, if you do have additional backup set of prescription eyewear or what other vital personal items you need, make sure that you have those with you. <clears throat> if you have the ability to carry your family's medical records with you, maybe you've got them on a PDF inside a little encrypted um uh, flash drive that that'd be awesome would you agree strongly agree man and you'll yeah. notice there's an awful lot of overlap here between what we're talking about in this episode and that edc bag that edc bag could have been part one of this preparedness series because that is um a lot of the things you're going to have in there are going to overlap just like that flash drive full of documents with things that we're recommending on here yeah, that's. I mean, that's why they call it a go bag. You grab it and you go. And you should have your family's insurance card, driver's license, social security cards, all this other kind of stuff. Even if you don't have the, if you don't want to carry the paper stuff with you, have it digitized. Um, that goes for pets as well. If your pets have certain medications, I can't. We, you know, Justin and I are 
we love our dogs as much as we love anybody, so we want to we want to make sure they're taken care of. You know, here's an, another neat idea. Having a current photo of your family members will definitely help facilitate a family reunification plan uh, because the American Red Cross and the National Emergency Family Registry has locator systems, and they're going to need those photos. So it's probably not a bad idea to have a folder with a couple of JPEG images of your family on that encrypted USB device as well. Yeah, uh, I, I'm going to go back just a little bit to the pets thing. Um, s- there are some shelters that will accept pets, but it's absolutely imperative that those pets are fully vaccinated and those vaccines are up to date. Having that information is incredibly valuable. We have a go bag for the pets that has a small unopened bag of dog food in it. It has some water. It has some pet-specific medication uh, that one of our pets has. Uh, it has extra leashes. Uh, basically, if if we got to grab the dogs and go, we can grab that bag and be out the door with the dogs in no time. Really think about your pets. Really uh, have that stuff ready to go. And one other thing we ha- uh, don't have in there yet, but that is definitely high on our priority list, we started talking about this a, a couple of weeks ago, is having those vaccination records on hard copy, I would say have those things on hard copy, man, because if you are, uh, if you, for whatever reason, have to go to a shelter, you will have to prove the vaccination status of that animal. So um, make sure you, I would say have it on paper, man. That's that's too important a thing for me to, to only have digitally. So true. And I'm going to tell you a quick story. Uh, when I, I was out of the Marine Corps for three years when I was a police officer, when I came back in the Marine Corps, I went to San Diego to attend this course, <clears throat> I get out there and I'm a staff sergeant and I, they say, you know, Staff Sergeant Brown, you got to go to medical. I'm like, okay. I go down there and they're like, oh man, so sorry, Staff Sergeant Bro, but we can't find your immunization. So we're going to have to give you the entire series going back to, you know, the dozens of shots you got in recruit training up to today. I'm like, time out, Hoss. <laughs> I have that at home. <laughs> and I was able, I was able to get my wife to, to scan in a copy and send it to me out there, and I, I could show them I already have this. So, your own personal immunization, if you have it, is probably not a bad idea to have digitized as well. Yeah, absolutely, man. Uh, one thing on uh, on blood type, like a lot of people recommend having, you know, a tattoo with your blood type on it, or knowing your blood type, or uh, wearing some sort of bracelet or you know, emergency alert necklace or your blood type. Here's the thing, man. Uh, giving someone the wrong blood is a, is a death sentence. So um, the one thing that's going to happen before you get any kind of blood uh, transfusion is they are going to blood type you on the spot. They're not going to take your word for it. They're not going to take the word of your emergency alert necklace. Uh, I wouldn't waste a lot of time on that quite honestly. Yeah, totally. And I was one of those morons by about 10 or 15 years ago. I was out doing some boots and utes run uh, and this Navy Corpsman's like, hey, sir, I see you got O positive written on your uh, web belt there. I'm like, yeah, you know, I'm thinking he's going to pat me on the back. He's like, yeah, we don't give a shit about that. You know, we're we're going to was type and cross check or cross match your blood or something like that on the spot. And we don't give a shit how many O positives you got written all over you. That's just for the movies. Yeah. Yeah. You're going to be, you're going to be blood typed because the the risk or the potential consequences giving someone the wrong blood is just too great. They're not going to take the word of your, the magic marker blood type you wrote on your first aid kit. Yeah. So let's talk about food and 
I know that neither you nor I really want to go down the rabbit hole here because this is where a lot of really well-intentioned folks get sucked into this stuff. What I will tell you is, and then Justin, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. You want to have plenty of uh, non-perishable as well as perishable food on hand. Make sure that you know part of your food supply is high energy, easily portable foods such as energy bars and protein bars, whatever you want to call them. But I would say you'd probably need at a minimum enough for your entire family to last, like you said, Justin, three days. We said that was the absolute minimum. If you really want to be cool, five to 10 days is probably where you need to be. But I don't forget special items. If you have uh, infants or a diabetic or elderly family members that have certain dietary needs, uh, then you want to definitely take that into, uh, into hand, as well as your pets, man. And for God's sake, have a manual can opener and some utensils on hand. And, and finally, before I hand it over to you, man, don't go crazy on this, but do be prepared. So here's where I diverge from from your recommendation a little bit. I, I'm not the biggest fan of having, quote unquote, emergency food or disaster food or prep food set aside in some different category than my normal food with one important caveat. If you, if in some sort of emergency, you you uh, can provide power for yourself and can provide heat for yourself, if you have a gas stove with a your own propane tank in the ground that feeds that gas stove and oven, then this is for you. Or if you have a generator and can power your electric stove, which that'd be a pretty big generator, but some people do, uh, rather than having set aside survival food, preparedness food, whatever, there's a lot of problems with that. It's not the things you normally eat, so it's going to be a big adjustment. It goes bad, so you've got to rotate it in and out. It's an extra expense. It's extra storage space. What I'd much rather you do is just have additional supplies of the things you already eat. If you have a bag of sugar and a bag of flour and a bag of cornmeal and a jar of this and a jar of that in your pantry right now, and that's what you use on a daily basis, then the next time you go to the grocery store, basically there's an entire philosophy on this. Um, of basically tracking everything you eat for a week. When you go to the grocery store, uh, let's see, I ate this box of macaroni and cheese. Uh, so write that down. Uh, if you eat that second box of macaroni and cheese, put a tick mark next to it. And when you go back to the grocery store, you buy twice as much of whatever you've consumed that week and basically just start building out your pantry in depth. Not only does that insulate you against some sort of disaster like we're talking about, a hurricane, a tornado, a flood, a terrorist event, it also insulates you against things like financial cost fluctuations. If you eat a lot of a certain thing and suddenly because there's a shortage of this or that or the other, that thing goes way up in price, guess what? You already have you know your next couple of weeks of it in the pantry. Um, it insulates you against job loss because guess what? You don't have to buy groceries for a couple of weeks because you've set those things aside and you can continue to eat what you're used to eating. It ensures that you don't run out of stuff. If you've got an extra bag of sugar behind that normal bag of sugar, well, guess what? When you run out of sugar, you just go down to the basement and grab that other bag and make a note to replace that one when the next time you go to the grocery store. I'm a big fan of, of just having duplicates or you know larger, greater quantities of the stuff you normally eat anyway. Totally, totally agree with that. Um, let's talk about food fuel and fire. You should have enough fuel to run your generators, power the kerosene heater, propane appliances. Like you said, if you're one of those, like like here on the farm, we have supplemental propane uh, heat. So I have a 500 gallon tank out there. 
you need uh, fuel to run chainsaws and tractors and all this other stuff for a minimum of three days. Now, I will tell you, I did run out of propane and kerosene uh, during this, this big winter weather disaster I'm, I keep talking about. But thankfully, because of my duties as a director, I was able to travel from town to town, you know, and sometimes more than an hour away where I was able to get in some of the unaffected areas and find the precious kerosene and propane that we needed. But I would also tell you, man, keep a short uh, rubber hose for uh, siphoning fuel. And on that topic, a lot of the uh, newer cars, they have these uh, rollover devices built inside to the gas tank. This is a little like a steel ball bearing. If the car flips over, the ball bearing rolls down and will keep the gas from flooding out, creating another potential disaster of the car catching on fire, what have you. So this has made uh, siphoning vehicles pretty hard, but not impossible. So some of the literature I've read, and I I have not tried it, is that if you take some of the smaller clear tubing, you can actually go down. If you cut it at an angle, you can actually get around that ball device to get into the tank and and siphon. So that is something that you can still do, a little bit harder than maybe when I was growing up and siphoning gas to, to, to power the weed eater or something, but... But fuel is incredibly important, man. And when we say fuel, you know what? Let me back up. I want to talk about the gas thing because I don't want I don't want the listener to think that we're talking about a Mad Max scenario. But God forbid if there is an EMP, thirty percent of the vehicles are probably going to keep running, and you're going to have two two thirds of the vehicles that are going to be stuck wherever they're stuck at, and that means that some bridges and some other things are going to be. Uh, create hazards even if you don't have that if you if you're one of the people that live uh in or near one of the 60 plus nuclear reactors that we have here in the united states and there's some sort of radiological emergency at one of those they're going to shut off uh 10 square miles is the um the emergency protective zone is what they call it anything and everything is probably going to be left in there so there's a whole host of reasons why you may need fuel right now uh in your vehicle so anyway I just want to get that out of the way. But when we talk about fuel, we also are talking about wood for your stove, candles, uh, all this other stuff, right? Yep. So, but like we've talked about in another thing, being able to heat your home with wood is really awesome, but it also means you have everything you need to burn your damn house to the ground. So like we did in our fire episode, you need to be able to, to be your own fire department. And but better than that, you need to be able to, to make sure that you don't have a fire breakout in your house, right? Absolutely, man. I, I We cannot hit this strongly enough. The risk of this happening during some sort of emergency scenario when you're heating with things that you're not used to heating with and introducing all these different fuels and flames to your home goes up a lot. Also, the consequences go up a lot because the fire department is probably not going, may not physically be able to reach you. And even if they are, they may have a bunch of other competing priorities. So go back to that fire episode Take those lessons to heart and uh, and make sure you're prepared to be your own fire department. And uh, to your point, though, one of the things you brought up in there, you talked about uh, a lot of the um, uh, smoke alarms in houses nowadays are uh, powered into the power supply. So do you know the status of that backup battery that's inside there? Because when the power goes out, you also just lost your smoke detector. So lots of things to consider. Let's talk about sanitation. Let me tell you something, man. If you're going to be shut up indoors for long periods of time, time sanitation is going to be a concern. And that means having additional uh, disinfectant sprays and wipes and all these other things to manage viruses that seem to come out of absolutely nowhere. 
one of the shelters here in the state of Tennessee, we had a huge norovirus outbreak, and it was brutal. I think almost everybody got sick, and we literally went to, found a Kmart, and everything of bleach, every hand sanitizing wipe, Clorox wipes, everything we could get, we took it. Uh, toilet paper, toothbrushes, toothpaste, feminine products, soap, liquid detergent. And I like your idea on soap, and I want you to tell us what kind of soap that you were alluding to the other day, because now you got my interest peak. But l- liquid detergents, a-, a gallon of bleach, man, huge proponent, maybe two gallons of bleach, uh, something to wash clothes, baby wipes, and also a bucket with a tight lid should round out your hygiene needs. And if you want to know what the damn bucket and the lid's for, it's for human waste because uh, if there's no way to flush the toilets, you're going to still have to use the bathroom, folks. So you want a, a means to pop that lid on until you can get it out of the house. Yeah, no question, man. Uh, so the the soap, um, I'm actually, I, I will have a blog post up on this uh, very shortly. It's, it's called Dr. Browner's Magic Soap. And I carry, um, I have a little, a small, I think it's a two ounce bottle of this stuff that I travel with when I travel as, as my soap. And it works for almost freaking everything, man. You can wash dishes with it. You can wash clothing with it. You can wash your body with it. You can even brush your damn teeth with it, man. Yeah. I love that. I'm about to get some, uh, okay, let's get, let's move on down to, this is an interesting one. Trash bags, Ziploc bags, tarps, and all this other stuff. Trash bags, I've seen in disasters as being incredibly important because some of the things you don't consider for cleanup, you know, being able to put the debris somewhere, uh, aid in waterproofing, using a tarp or roll of black plastic to help patch holes in the roof, man. When you need it, you need it, and that's something that you can just kind of put in the garage and and kind of forget that it's there. Um, But also, you know, uh, you could also use it to, um, well... I don't know. Ziploc bags, to me, is one of those things that keep your phones and other valuables waterproofed in emergency. You can store pens and pencils and markers and other stuff in them. I mean, there's a whole host of reasons to have some Ziploc bags and stuff like that around. Yeah, no doubt, man. And, um, you know, while we're, while we're at it, things like paper plates, disposable everything you can possibly have that doesn't doesn't add an additional burden to your very very limited very precious water supply uh yeah you want to have that basic sanitation needs covered down on as much as you can so the next one batteries and lights um you're going to want to have lots of batteries in every single variety to power flashlights and other portable devices but i'll also tell you you know oil lamps they can supply uh, a portable light source, maybe a little heat, but and we, we could talk about glow sticks, crank operated flashlights, headlamps. I love headlamps. Uh, plastic tubs, you know, are great for keeping your valuables in if you have to bug out. I mean, I, I had a buddy of mine that they had to bug out for Hurricane Katrina, and because the Marine Corps at the last minute, it's like we're going. Everybody out right now. We're meeting at this hotel hundreds of miles away, and what he did was he took the. Uh, uh, plastic tubs put all of his valuables in it his all of his electronic devices uh, photos and things of this nature and stuck them up on the highest part of the closet that he had and and sure enough man trees penetrated the roof his house was a total loss they had to bulldoze it to the ground and rebuild but none of his uh, valuables were just de- were destroyed so think about that i know it's not necessarily a battery and lights issue but something to consider so let's talk about clothing and ppe 
A good pair of boots that are waterproof and well insulated are worth their weight in gold. But even if you don't, well, Rich, I don't really need that. I don't have that. That's fine. I will tell you that closed-toed shoes are the only thing you should be wearing in and around at a disaster because you're going to have debris. You're going to have contaminated water. If your foot gets cut and you're standing in contaminated water, I can tell you what's going to happen. You're not only going to have an injured foot where you're going to lose your mobility, but it's also going to have an infection that you probably won't have the antibiotics to deal with. Yeah, that's absolutely right, Matt. I, um, you know, I, I'm not going to get so specialized in this that I start accumulating and stockpiling antibiotics. No, nor should you, because you probably don't know enough about it. Uh, but also, I will say, uh, when we talk about clothing and PPE, a small clothing repair kit with extra buttons and zippers and needles and thread and all this other stuff is going to be worth its weight in gold as well. Uh, gloves is another one, man. I've talked about it many times. This is something I don't scrimp on because a good pair of leather gloves, it's going to allow you to handle debris like broken glass and fencing wire and torn piece of tin roof. I mean, if you've been in these types of um, places, you know, whether it's a tornado or, or a hurricane, you know what I'm talking about. Tree limbs, it's, it's an absolute mess. So you want to have a good pair of insulated and non-insulated gloves depending on the time of the year. Also, when we're talking about gloves, man, latex or nitrate gloves are also good to deal with uh, blood-borne pathogens. Uh, safety glasses is another great example of PPE that, and something that I don't really scrimp on because, like you said, on the prescription I wear, you know, when, if you can't see, you're in trouble. As well as reducing the sun's glare, man, safety glasses come in a variety of types, you know, whether they're clear or tinted. I think you probably want to have a little bit of both. Uh, sunscreen, we're talking about protective equipment, right? Sunscreen something to protect your skin from the sun as well as protect your head. You know, maybe a hat. Dust masks are also incredible for protecting your lungs. Hell, uh, earplugs to protect your ears if you're operating chainsaws or firearms. And I honestly, man, and I think you would agree with this, I, I like to have the foamies, but also electric earmuffs so that I can shoot and communicate at the same time. Yeah, you know, I'm not a huge fan of electric earmuffs. I don't know why, man, but I just I I just cannot get used to the, um, like, basically they'll amplify normal sounds like human speech and pipe that in through little speakers inside the earmuffs. But then when something goes over a certain level, like a gunshot or a chainsaw, that turns off and it will it serves the effect of dampening it. Um, personally, for me, man, I I don't know that I get any benefit out of that anyway because I've lost so much hearing. It's really really important that I protect all of it. So now I wear earplugs inside of earmuffs, and um, yeah, just basically accept the fact that <laughs> that I don't have great situational awareness when I'm wearing those things. Well, I'll be around you, buddy. I'll be the one that can hear because I absolutely love it. I, and I can barely hear anything as well. And I, I love wearing them because I can crank it up and actually hear what you're saying for a change. Uh, but anyway, when it comes to weather-related clothing, ponchos, jackets, warm headgear should definitely round out your preparedness apparel. And I think it was the Norwegians that ha- they have this saying that there's no bad weather, just bad clothing. So make sure you're prepared when it comes to clothing. And this next one, this is one that you can definitely help us out on, Justin. Keys, computers, passwords. Um, I think you'll want to have a backup set of keys to your home and all your vehicles, as well as a printed copy of the usernames and passwords to all your family's most important websites and apps. And I believe you had that covered in our EDC episode. But um, if you are credentialed, you're going to want to keep those close at hand as well. 
when you pack your laptops and other computer stuff, ensure that you got to got them in some sort of waterproof, crushproof containers. You know, we talked a little bit about putting them in tubs if you can. External battery-powered packs, like uh, we, I think we gave them a couple examples of different types in the EDC episode as well. But um, anyway, anything else on that, man? No, I would say uh, having that computer ready to go is one of the first things that you grab. It may seem like a, a frivolous thing, and I guess it depends on you know how, how you use your computer. But for me, my computer houses electronic copies of all my important stuff, my password manager database that lets me get into all my stuff. I would prioritize having that. I would also have a backup on some sort of hard drive or flash drive or whatever packed up in your EDC bag so you can just uh, just grab that and go. Um, uh, I feel like there was something else you listed in there other than electronics. But yeah, I, I guess if you just do that, you will be massively better off than you would have uh, otherwise been. Yeah, and if you're if maybe there's some sort of small external storage device that you have to keep a lot of your stuff in, grab it. If not, if it's secured in the cloud, that's cool. You can pull it down wherever you go. But let's talk about currency. You know, ATMs and other methods of electronic currency are awesome, but guess what? When the power goes down, they're they're not working. So having cash on hand, and I know that we beat that one to death in several episodes now, it, but it, it's critical not just when you're traveling or for your day-to-day EDC type stuff, but it is incredibly important during an, an emergency, especially the initial period of that disaster. Um, what would you say on that, Just Anything? Well, I would say having multiple forms of currency. First and foremost, having a credit card with a line of credit on it. And I don't use my credit card very much at all. I don't carry a balance on it, but I have tens of thousands of dollars that I could access in credit if I had to in an emergency. And like Rich is saying, in the affected area of that disaster, that thing might be completely worthless because power might be out, communication lines might be out. You may not be able to use a credit card at all in the immediate radius of that disaster. But if you're driving several hours away, several hundred miles away, and you've got to stay in a hotel and feed yourself, having that credit card could be really, really valuable, really, really beneficial. For that immediate area, yeah, you want a couple hundred bucks in cash in your EDC bag and your go bag. And you probably also want to maintain some cash in your home. And you know, I uh, there's a guy whose blog I follow. He's a cop, and he writes mostly about kind of tactical subjects. But uh, his philosophy, or the way he does this, is he pays for all his cars in cash, and he does that by you know just setting aside hundred bucks, couple hundred bucks, however much every time he gets paid in cash in his home. So at any given time, unless he's just bought a car, he has thousands of dollars that he can grab and be ready to uh, be ready to hit the road. You need to have some cash. Because like Rich is saying, uh, and I'm saying, credit may not work, cards may not work. And one thing that uh, that I personally have seen with a couple disasters, when fuel becomes in very short supply, especially like Hurricane Katrina, where it hit a large fuel-producing area of the country, prices go up. So you may need more cash than you think you need. So uh, get started on that as soon as you can. Correct. So next one let's talk about is... Maps and GPSs and things of this nature. You know, your your phone, your smartphone is going to have an amazing GPS that's already built built into it. Uh, but I will also tell you, you know, our damage assessment teams that we sent out from the Red Cross needed local maps, so we were able to get some of those from the Chamber of Commerce so that they could get into 
the affected areas. Uh, you know, a small compass probably couldn't hurt to have in your uh, EDC bag. And, you know, uh, another thing that I would tell you when it comes to maps and things of that nature is having pre-selected evacuation routes and link-up points for other family and friends along the way. Anything else, Justin, on maps and stuff? Boy, we could, yeah, we could probably go down a big rabbit hole with that. I'll, I'll leave it at that. But yeah, you need to have an idea if you're leaving of where you're going. I would say you need to have a primary, alternate, and tertiary route to get the heck out of there. Um, don't just plan on, I mean, I guess if you live down in Southern Florida, there's only one real direction you're going to be going, and that's north. But uh, if you live in the middle of the country, if you live, you know, somewhere where you have several possibilities you could go north you could go south or you could go east have that route kind of pre-planned and i would say know how to do it without having to rely on a map at least know how to get out of the immediate area and out onto the highway and and in some places that requires quite a bit of driving before you're at a major highway somewhere Correct. Okay, uh, camping gear and bedding, and, and once again, man, you and I could go down way down the rabbit hole about what we like with, with regard to sleeping bags and thermal blankets and all this other camping-related stuff. What I would tell you, though, is you need to consider a few things. Number one, the sleeping situation, road sanitation, and then finally cooking and eating. Uh, and and one final thing, I would say keeping, if you have children or, and those little ones in your life, have something that will keep them occupied. I'm going to tell you, one of the things that we have pre uh, put together for these disasters is we'll have uh, a, a tiny little stuffed animal, packet of crayons, a coloring book, some playing cards and stuff like that already in Ziploc bags, and they're already at the shelters waiting. So when the little ones come in there and they're just a bundle of energy, you could hand them that Ziploc bag. They've got a toy. They've got some things to play with, and we'll have some board games. So consider those things. What do you think? Yeah, strongly agreed with that, man. Okay, vehicle. And we're getting toward the end here. Vehicles should never, in my opinion, be driven home with less than three quarters of a tank of gas. Because like we said, you know, that was kind of my uh, thought process before I got into this disaster. But then the fact that we did have vehicles with three quarters of tanks of gas meant that I could run the uh, car to uh, power smartphones and other devices. They should be parked in a safe place and backed in so they can aid in a quick ec- uh, escape. Parked in a safe place, man. I'm when we had the ice storm. Uh, I learned this one all too well because my beautiful oak trees in the front yard started splintering and falling apart, and these huge uh, limbs that weighed hundreds and hundreds of pounds comes crashing to the ground. And it was only through divine providence that my wife's brand new. Mercury, Mercury Lacrosse was not crushed. So um, that's very important because, you know, your vehicle is your main source of mobility. And we talked, which is why one of the things that you and I have spent a great deal of time explaining is keeping that thing well-maintained. And while we're talking about that, do you want to tell them about the book or PDF that we have available? Yeah. So there is the ATP Vehicle Maintenance Logbook. That thing's available on Amazon.com. I uh, posted a blog post just about the logbook. I posted uh, a photo of it in my uh, glove box. It's a very compact, very small book. I posted... uh, pictures of a couple of the pages filled out and how that looks when it's done. This thing will guide you through making sure your tires are maintained, making sure your fluids are maintained, all your safety equipment, your lights, your horns, your turn signals, all that good stuff. It's really, really simple to follow. And for us, for me and Kai, we do this every Saturday morning. And I've found 
now that I actually have that book, and that gives me a little more motivation to actually go out and do that. Because if I miss a week, um, I I see that on the dates that kind of bothers me. It kind of bugs me. So we have been much more diligent about doing this every week. And you know, one thing we found out with Kai's car, what, the first time we did this on hers is, you know, her tires. Every single one of her tires is underinflated. Some of them by by quite a bit and not enough to be really immediately visibly noticeable, but, uh, we got those tires filled up and we've been keeping a much closer eye on that. So, uh, check that out on amazon.com. You can also, the ATP vehicle maintenance logbook. you can also find it at, of course at across the Yeah. And if you're like me or my buddy, Cecil Birch, who's a, a combatives guru and uh Brazilian jiu-jitsu blacks, Black belt, shout out to you, uh, Cecil. Uh, you know, he's like, I'm not a car guy, but I I listen to your and Justin's uh, podcast, and I know that I need to keep my vehicle maintained. And I think that what you guys talked about were great. Um, I'm going to go over a few things here, man. Your vehicle should have a, and, and I know we've repeated this elsewhere, so just bear with me if you've heard it already. Uh, but I think it's important also, to, you know, like I said before, it's the obligation of the responsible to overstate the obvious. So here we go. Fully inflated spare tire, right? And the tools to change it, jumper cables, road flares, tire plug kit, can of fix a flat, all the things we talked about before, 12 volt, 12 volt tire pump, backup fuses, uh, siphoning hoses, we talked about that, gallon of antifreeze, windshield wiper fluid, brake fluid, tire chains, transmission and hydraulic fluid. Uh, but if you want extra points, you want you want to really impress Justin and I. You can have a five gallon jug of water, some extra fuel, a come along or winch to to get yourself out of a a jam. Maybe a backup serpentine belt, man. If that serpentine belt goes out and it's the thing that moves your entire vehicle, having that one thing that is taking up almost no space might not be a bad idea. But you're also going to need a small set of tools with everything necessary to facilitate some of the repairs that I'm talking about, though. So check out our logbook, man. I think you will enjoy it. Justin, let's talk about chainsaws real quick. Okay. We've mentioned this before, but I think chainsaws, from my experience, are key to getting through down trees and debris that are that is across a roadway. And that could, and this... You think about the things that takes trees down, hurricanes, tornadoes, winter weather, all these things are going to essentially blow what engineers would call an abatis across a roadway to deny mobility to the enemy. Well, guess what? An abatis of trees laying across a roadway that happened because of a hurricane, it's doing the same damn thing. It's denying you access to, to an escape route or whatever. So having a chainsaw... A little bit of fuel and oil and extra blades maybe is a good idea that you would want to consider because it could be something as simple as just cleaning up your yard or your roof. But I think this item seems to be rarely on a lot of the survivalist or prepper lists that I've seen. But I can assure you, man, nobody could have moved in in our area without an advanced chainsaw team leading the way. What what has been your experience? I've not been in a situation where I've had to use a chainsaw to get out of my immediate area. I have been in a situation where a tree has fallen against my house that I had to use a chainsaw to uh, to get rid of that tree, take care of that problem before it became a bigger problem and actually damaged my house. And of course, typical yard cleanup stuff. And I would say don't wait until the hurricane or the tornado or whatever to buy a chainsaw. Now where I'm at now, a chainsaw is not terribly important. I'm in a, a fairly, a fairly large city. Um, 
maybe if I'm the very first person coming through there, uh, there's going to be opportunity to use a chainsaw to get myself out. I don't have a yard that I have to maintain currently. I, uh, I did when we first started this podcast, but uh, I, the place I've moved to now, I have no responsibility for maintaining any kind of yard or anything like that. Um, and I still have my chainsaw. I don't think it's uh, one of the most important things I have at this point. But uh, yeah, I, I would say look at your situation. And if you're in a location like you're in, uh, chainsaw is absolutely imperative. There's no substitute. Yeah, it's that's a great point. And that is doing that SWOT analysis of your own individual needs is so important because you're right. You may not need it where you're at, but I can assure you it was incredibly important here. So prepare to be your own little chainsaw team. Yeah, absolutely. And one category, I hate to jump back to the EDC thing again, man, but this has sparked just a tremendous amount of conversation with our audience, with um, with me and Kai, with her putting together her bag. And one category that I'm adding to this currently is a, I don't know, a repair category. I don't know exactly what you'd call this, but I threw some 550 cord in based on our conversation there. We happen to have a bag of 12-inch cable ties laying around the house, so I threw a half a dozen of those things in there. And at this point, it wouldn't hurt to throw, take a hard landing space, throw a little bit of duct tape and maybe a sewing kit in there. And imagine that maybe on a slightly bigger scale for your house, for your home, for your farm, for your apartment, whatever you've got. But yeah, that's definitely a category that you want to you wanna be able to check the box on. Correct. And when it comes to duct tape and stuff, you know, the duct tape that you and I probably used in the Marine Corps was olive drab or black or whatever. Well, nowadays as a civilian, I'm, I'm not trying to be a tactical ninja and hide from freaking anybody. So my duct tape that I have in my truck is yellow and black for a reason. So I want to be high vis on the things that I'm doing. Even if it's securing something, I want to forget that it's that this is just held together with duct tape. So before we finish, I want to say this is I've got two things. Number five Let's go over the, the, the top four so far. Don't plan, prepare. That's more of a mindset. We have a set of enabling conditions we need to consider. Uh, we talked about number three, sheltering in place. Number four, we talked about the general survival supplies. Uh, number five is going to be take care of yourself, man, uh, especially in a disaster. These are the times when you're going to potentially push your body to the limit, push your yourself emotionally to the limit, psychologically to the limit. That's why you have to, to train and, and take care of your body. And if that means getting up during the disaster and keeping a little bit of a PT regimen going, doing some push-ups and sit-ups and things of this nature, I would highly encourage you to do it. It's also important to make a rest and sleep schedule so that when someone in your family or your coalition is doing something, cooking, whatever, that you can get some sleep because your body and your mind is going to need it. The sixth and final thing I would say is... Uh, you need to make a kit and develop a plan. You you maybe have prepared your car, your home, you know your kit, your supplies from some of the other things that Justin and I have talked about. But you need to have a set of plans that cover home fires and weather-related stuff, man-made disasters. If you live in one of those uh, zones that are around a nuclear power plant, you probably know what the plan is. But if, if you don't, you need to find out what that plan is because I promise you the government has put together a comprehensive plan. You need to know what it is. Not just you need to know what it is, but every member of your family that's going to be affected by that potential disaster needs to know what it is. Would you agree with that? 
Yeah, no doubt, man. Okay, so that should round it out, man. Uh, know the emergency plan, know the link-up points, know the communications plan. There are plenty of al- valuable resources out there for you to, to develop your plan, and we'll have a lot of them in our show notes for today's show and acrossthepeak.com. Okay, guys, so for Book of the Week this week, Prepping for Life by Grant Cunningham. Uh, this is a, a fairly quick read, and again, it's not a list of the cool guy gear. It's not uh, a checklist of you need to get this, this, and this. It is how to think about preparedness, how to think about safety in the face of some sort of adversity. And I can't recommend this book highly enough. It definitely goes, it focuses much more on the things that are quite honestly more important than the equipment. And that's the mindset, the mental ability and skills you need to be able to survive really any form of adversity whatsoever. And this will, I would say this would be my first read, the first stop if I were going to think about how to begin preparing for some sort of emergency disaster whatever the whatever it is you are trying to prepare yourself for. Yeah, dude, I'm definitely going to check it out. I wasn't even aware that book was out there, so I will go get a copy. Yeah, I got it on my uh, on my iPhone and I've been um I've been dipping back into I read it a while back and I've been dipping back into it a little bit in the few days leading up to this. So, uh, Rich, why don't you go ahead and take us out, man? All right, brother. If you enjoyed this content, share it with someone. If you really, really enjoyed it, I'd encourage you to go on iTunes and leave Justin and I a review. That's how we get uh, ranked and rated on iTunes, and it really helps us out. But I would much, much, much rather you share this with somebody in your family that really could use this information because I think it can take care of you. One of the things that Justin and I always talk about is being competent and dangerous, but I would also tell you that if you cannot be safe, then be dangerous. You've been listening to the Across the Peak podcast. Be sure to visit acrossthepeak.com for show notes and bonus content. Until then, be safe. And if you can't be safe, be dangerous. Be dangerous.